0: before i begin a short warning on the content of this episode this episode will cover two films made by the controversial director roman polanski for those of you who don't know the primary reason he is controversial is that in 1977 he pled guilty to unlawful sexual intercourse with a thirteen-year-old this episode covers polanski's nineteen sixties career and therefore we will not be talking about these events Nevertheless, I think it is important to acknowledge them when assessing the director's work, and certainly any positive comments I may make about his films should not be considered as an endorsement of his despicable and criminal behaviour. And now, on with the episode. My name is Val Thomas, and this is the big screen biograph recounting the stories behind the people behind the films this time british film producer tony tensor part one straight out of compton Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another Cinema Newstime Newsreel, giving all of our British patrons the latest headlines right here in the cinema. Here we see the British forces parachuting into Egypt to heroically recapture the Suez Canal. That's one in the eye for Egypt's president, Colonel Nasser. Look out, Colonel. Britain doesn't take kindly to bullies. And here's Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, touring Nigeria. Her Majesty received an extremely warm welcome, but the demands of high office never stop, so it's back to the Royal Yacht and goodbye to Nigeria for our hardworking sovereign. Look out, girls! It's Elvis Presley. This young fellow seems to be causing a bit of a stir in the United States, with his foot-tapping tunes and his saucy gyrations. He's winning hearts and topping charts everywhere he goes. How about you visit us in Britain, Elvis? And what's this? In Soho, the throbbing heart of London's entertainment scene, we find a group of saucy London strippers protesting that Brigitte Bardot, France's naughtiest export, is putting them out of business. That's right, the flirty French ingenue has been emptying London's glamorous nightclubs with her naughty knockabout film, And God Created Woman. And these lovely ladies don't like it one bit. But when it comes to chuchel femme, the gents say, c'est la vie, ladies. Oh well, good luck to you girls! The year was 1956, and the incident involving strippers picketing Bridget Bardot's film and God Created Woman really did happen. To be honest, her film wasn't that racy, and it was in black and white with subtitles. In reality, audiences were dropping off, enter publicity man Tony Tenzer the film distribution company he was working for needed something to pique the interest of the public now Tony knew how the press worked and more importantly he knew press men those seedy little chaps who were all too eager to come out and cover a story like this so Tony went to see his friend Michael Klinger who ran a strip club and borrowed a dozen of his strippers for this staged event the ruse was a huge success Audiences flocked to see Brigitte Bardot in Roger Vadim's film. Tony also coined the phrase Sex Kitten to describe Brigitte Bardot, a nickname that would stay with her for the rest of her career. This stripper protest was to prove the first in a series of successful business collaborations between Tony Tenzer and Michael Klinger, and the start of one of the most extraordinary careers in British cinema. Welcome. To the tale of Tony Tenzer. Tony Tenzer came to the film industry by accident. Oh, it wasn't as though he didn't like films. He described how, as a child, he loved westerns and the universal horror movies of Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. It is just that, Growing up in London's East End as the son of Lithuanian immigrants during the Depression, the idea of actually making something as magical as a film seemed absurdly fanciful. Back in those days, it was all about putting dinner on the table and keeping soles on your shoes. Tony worked in a lumberyard before being drafted when World War II broke out. On his return to civilian life, he took a job working for his uncle's tailoring business. It just so happened that one of their orders was supplying uniforms to a local cinema, and it was through this connection that Tony took a job as a cinema manager, a job which in those days involved scheduling the films shown and promoting them locally. As it turns out, Tony had a real gift for promotion and marketing of the films he showed. His talents were noticed and this led him up the ladder to eventually join the publicity department of Miracle Films, a small distribution company for whom he arranged the Brigitte Bardot stunt. But Tony's meeting with Michael Klinger fired the imagination of both men. Klinger's Gentlemen's Club attracted bored, stressed 1950s businessmen from all over London's business district. Tenzer and Klinger dreamt up the idea of creating their own cinema club, which would show films not available to the general public. For you see, British legislation at that time allowed members only clubs to show films which were not certified by the British Board of Film Censors, the BBFC. And I'm sure you know what sort of films that means, and the potential profits in showing them. And so, Tenzer and Klinger set up a club called the Compton Cinema Club. Oh, it wasn't all nudity and exploitation, the club also showed uncut versions of controversial Hollywood movies. One early screening was of Marlon Brando's The Wild One. They also showed independent art movies coming out of Europe. But, indeed, the Compton Club also did a fine trade in screening the incredibly popular naturist documentaries of the time, with titles like The Nudist Stories, Nudist Memories, and Nudist Paradise.
1: For there is no way of life to compare with these health-loving, fun-loving pursuits. Watch the incomparable marvel of the female form at play. And at rest. This is life as you have never experienced it before.
0: But these were two ambitious businessmen and they realized that if the profits from exhibition are good, then potentially the profits from production, distribution, and exhibition would be greater still. Tenzer and Klinger pulled together a very modest budget for a film to be distributed by their own company, also called Compton. For reference, the average budget for a British film was around £150,000 at the time, roughly $300,000 US. Tony Tenzer and Michael Klinger managed to scrape up £3,000. The pair hired a glamour photographer, George Harrison Marks, famed for his burlesque pictures, and packed him off to Cornwall in September to make his naturist picture naked as nature intended. Let me just repeat that. Cornwall in September. The film that resulted is exactly what you think it would be. An incredibly coy tale of healthy young women frolicking, or at least attempting to frolic, in England in the autumn.
2: Dear sir or madam, have you ever felt you wanted to get away from it all? I mean, have a holiday that was a real change? Mm hmm, me too. And here's a girl who did, did feel like it, and did have a really different holiday, a nudist holiday. Here's how it all happened. This is Petrina.
0: As you might imagine, Petrina takes a little persuasion, but soon she has adopted the naturist lifestyle.
2: Come on, why not take off those wet costumes? It's a perfect day and nobody uses this beach except us!
0: That's right, Petrina. There's only you and me here. Uh, Oh yes, and that uh, camera crew of six men over there.
2: The lure of the sea, the sun and the sand proves too strong. And the longing to move free as the air, truly as nature intended is overwhelming to Pam, Katrina, and Jackie. Well, here goes. As Bridget explains, you've got to forget all that you've heard in the past. The silly jokes about nudists, the advice from other people. And then a place like this Sun Club becomes an important and the part of your life. What better way could there be to achieve a healthy body and a healthy mind at one and the same time?
0: To avoid an outright ban, no pubic hair is shown, but there are a lot of boobs and bums, as the women engage in hijinks by the pool and then head to the beach to throw a ball around. One of the actresses kept her legs firmly clamped together and made judicious use of that beach ball. I don't want anyone seeing me biscuit, she explained. In between these scenes, there are educational segments about the joys of naturist living and a visit to Stonehenge of all places. But despite this, and despite an official endorsement by Britain's naturist movement, Britain's chief censor at that time, a chap named John Trevelyan, chose to impose a ban on the film for showing too much nudity. But this wasn't necessarily an obstacle to Tony Tenza and Michael Klinger. In fact, it was a positive boon. For you see, the censor's recommendation was only that, a recommendation. It could be overridden by the local councils, if they wished, and such was the case around Britain. Many councils viewed the film and found it to be no worse than many of the other naturist documentaries. As a result, Tenza and Klinger were able to show their film around the country, and in their private club, and claim it was the film the censor didn't want you to see. Of course, there were some local councils which had more Victorian members who agreed with the censor and decided to ban the film, but even that worked in the film's favour. Disappointed audiences simply hopped on a bus and travelled to the nearest town that was showing it to see what all the fuss was about. You can't buy publicity like this. Despite the inherent crapness of the film, the posters claimed it was the greatest nudist film ever and touted the film's star Pamela Green as Queen of the Pin-Ups. Queues formed around the block to see it. The film was exhibited on screens in London's West End for over two years, and that investment of £3,000... Was made back several times over. As a result, Compton Films rapidly followed up Naked as Nature Intended with more nude titles, including The Nude Ones and My Bare Lady. But the time of the nude film was coming to a close. The times were changing. The verdict from the Lady Chatterley obscenity trial showed that nudity was starting to make its way into mainstream cinema too, accompanied by an actual story with actual acting. Tony Tenzer and Michael Klinger sensed this and they were sensible enough to move with the times. Now I feel I should explain something. The term exploitation cinema is almost meaningless now. This is because it refers to those films which featured a subject that the respectable studios would never cover, so a low-budget producer could give the public something they couldn't see elsewhere. And here the subjects could be as extreme as things like cannibalism or as mild as marijuana usage. And so you can see now why exploitation cinema is a thing of the past, big-budget cannibal thrillers like Silence of the Lambs can win Oscars, and if Seth Rogen didn't smoke pot in a film it would be surprising. I think the last true exploitation film that broke down barriers and showed something you couldn't see elsewhere was Reservoir Dogs, and that's nearly 30 years ago. Since then, Quentin Tarantino hasn't just become influential. He's practically mainstream these days. But back in the early 1960s, Forbidden subjects proved fertile ground for independent outfits like Compton. They moved away from nude films to dramas, but always ensuring that the subject was something sensational enough to draw publicity and crowds. Their film That Kind of Girl covered a sexually adventurous young woman who contracts a venereal disease, whereas their film The Yellow Teddy Bears Covered the sexual awakenings of teenage schoolgirls. Compton could get away with making films like this by apparently disapproving of their subject matter, and perverted punters who went along to these films hoping for salacious subject matter were likely disappointed with the mild results. Despite actually being a rather talky, moralistic, and dull film, the trailer for That Kind of Girl. Was more than enough to sell the film to a sensation-seeking public.
3: Eager for life and laughter, she swings with the footloose and uninhibited youth of today. You will meet Linda, another kind of girl. You must have thought about it.
2: Thought about what?
3: Well, sex. He wanted marriage. He couldn't wait. In that kind of girl, Eva, enslaved by her flesh, starts a chain reaction of explosive, lustful love affairs.
4: No, Max. Why not? Because it isn't possible. I've never been with a man.
2: He drives him to strange,
3: erotic compulsions in his insatiable demands.
0: But the subject matter alone was enough to generate a good profit for Compton with Tony Tenzer proving himself adept at capturing the attention of the jaded press. He arranged screenings of The Yellow Teddy Bears for actual schoolgirls to prove that the film was unlikely to deprave and corrupt and had a morally redeeming value. And the British press helpfully responded with headlines like Schoolgirls Have X Film Lesson on Life and Shocked Not Us Say Girls. Yes, it is puerile, prurient, and stupid but these are the defining characteristics of the British press. Another way to exploit forbidden subjects was to adopt an educational approach to them. We may not approve of these lifestyles, say high-handed documentaries like Primitive London and London in the Raw, but ooh, look at that.
3: London in the Raw. Now, for the first time, the world's greatest city laid bare. Thrilled to its gay excitement, its bright lights. Be shocked by the evil that lurks in its shadows. London in the raw. Captivating, colorful, capricious. London in the raw. Life in all its variety.
1: This is the daring, titillating, inside story of Primitive London. Behind the bright lights, in the undergrowth of alleyways, lies the jungle of Primitive London. Here, life and people are different. The beat is offbeat. Here is London laid bare. Life is the password to Primitive London. From the tired businessman to the frustrated teenager, their desire for pleasure is gratified in Primitive London.
0: These documentaries feature scenes from early 1960s London, most of which probably did little for the thrill seeker. London men are fitted for hats. There are disapproving interviews with young people. A chiropodist removes dead skin from a man's foot. We get to sit in on a hair transplant operation. And for some reason, a lady cooks a whole roast chicken
1: for her Siamese
0: cat. And then there's this
4: car keys dropped into a balloon glass. This is a key party. Key parties are the latest game of chance, more exciting than bingo. It's the latest party gimmick, to whet the jaded appetites of some of London's party set.
3: Come on, everybody run! You're in the middle, come on!
0: But to satisfy the pervy punters, in between these segments there are scenes of burlesque dancers. One dancer's narration is particularly hilarious.
1: I've done this routine so often, I could do it in my sleep. Most of the girls in this game come up from the provinces. Show business is beckoning, you know. Well, nobody bothers with you if you work in these places. They've had some training, drama school or something. No, there's no chance of being discovered down here. Found out, maybe. Discovered, never. All this dressing is out on the clothes. But I can tell you what it's hardest of all on. And that's the feet.
0: This is the sort of thing your granddad got off on. Try not to think about it. Like their previous Naturist movies, Compton's Slice of London Life documentaries were extremely profitable. But the fad was fleeting. This didn't worry Michael and Tony too much. They already had other avenues to pursue. By 1964, Compton had become experts at repackaging foreign films, mostly Italian imports. With titles like Invasion of the Normans, The Shadow of Zorro, and The Sword of El Cid, which Compton would put out on a double bill. These Sword and Sandal double bills proved an excellent little owner for Compton. The public felt they were getting a bargain, and Tense explained that Compton would make far more from a double bill than in releasing the two films separately. Of course, the quality wasn't always great. Uh, We used to call them Daspin lid films, said Tenzer. It was uh, Spartacus-type stuff mainly. Some Italian bloke would say a whole bunch of gibberish and then uh, it would come out on the screen as goodbye. (laughs) But the ambitions of the pair reached beyond pushing Italian action films onto the public. Tony loved hosting press conferences where he would list the films on which Compton was about to start production one such conference included titles like The Teenage Terror, which was never made, The Loch Ness Monster, which was never made, The Day the Earth Caved In, never made, and The Pleasure Girls, more on that later. But their most lavish production at that time was The Black Torment. The Black Torment was inspired by one of the regular patrons at their Compton Cinema Club. The patron was James Carreras, who founded Hammer Films. Hammer was the great British success story at that time. Their lurid tales of gory horror, mixed with panting, barely concealed sexual desire, was a huge hit globally. The American market lapped it up and these films travelled well to other overseas markets like Japan, India, and Australasia, and the heady mix of sex and scares seemed right up Compton Street. The Black Torment was based on a gothic melodramatic novel for which they had already purchased the rights, and they put their most reliable director onto the project, a fellow named Robert Hartford Davis. He didn't have the style or the sophistication, or the budget, of Hammer's finest director, Terence Fisher, but he could be relied upon to bring in a film on budget. Or so Tenser and Klinger thought. He'd done a fine job in delivering their low-budget exploitation dramas up to this point, including the yellow teddy bears. Moving productions along quickly, and not getting bogged down in perfectionism, unfortunately, he felt differently about his period horror film. For you see, Hartford Davis loved this stuff, and it really shows on screen. Although Tenza and Klinger were looking for a Hammer-style film, it's clear that Hartford Davis was much more influenced by the horror films coming out of Italy at the time. His film is full of moody shadows, and suffused with rich colours. I should add that it does not have the dreamily atmospheric style of Mario Bava, nor the trippy bravura of 1960s Roger Corman, but it definitely has more in common with those movies than with the rich, bloody and dramatic panache of Terence Fisher's films. Tenzer and Klinger were not impressed, and here's where, I must confess, I have some sympathy for the producers. You often hear heartbreaking tales of directors whose artistic vision was compromised by troglodyte money men, but on the other hand, here was Hartford Davis, burning through their extremely limited cash. And threatening their other productions. Apparently, Tenzer asked Hartford Davis how far behind schedule he was. When the director admitted he was nearly two weeks behind schedule, Tenzer pulled the classic producer move of tearing several pages from the shooting script and telling Hartford Davis he was now right back on track. Hartford Davis never forgave the producers for this and never worked for them again. He also resented their interference in attempting to make the film more commercial. The biggest change they insisted upon was to move the story back a century, from the 19th century to the 18th, so that actresses could wear more revealing Hanoverian low-cut frocks instead of buttoned-up Victorian ones. Despite this, the film is actually a lot of fun. It is definitely a lesser British horror film from the period, but it could compare to something you might find on the bottom half of a hammer double bill. The story has a landowner named Sir Richard Fordyke, returning to his family home with a new wife after the death of his first wife. But on arrival, he finds himself besieged by locals who accuse him of rape and murder. There are eyewitnesses, they say, despite his being far away at the time.
1: You'll have heard
2: what happened to Judd's girl. Yes, I was about to go into that myself. She spoke my name before she died. You know that. No one is accusing you, but
1: I'm afraid it will soon come. There's more than one honest witness ready to swear that he's seen you in these parts in the last two
2: months. (laughs) You've been talking to that crazed man,
1: Jenkins. I've only just learned about him. There are others. Many of your tenants claim to have seen you ride through the village at night, pursued. Pursued? By whom? By the Lady Anne.
3: Lady Anne? There's no sense in this. I'm a hundred miles away and my wife. My first wife has been dead these four years.
0: The mystery deepens when his doppelganger is spotted all around the village, getting into fights and making statements which Sir Richard strenuously denies. And as if that weren't bad enough, a strange spectral figure torments Sir Richard at night. The figure seems to blame him for her death. Could it be his first wife?
4: No. I'm dreaming. Have you dreamed of
2: me, my love?
4: It's not possible. You're dead. Yes, Richard. Leave me in peace. I
2: cannot. You are my murderer.
4: So a I- what
0: an accident! You oh. You're speaking to me, Richard. Come. We'll go to the window. Once more. <gasps> go, Richard. While watching this film, you may sense the loss of those torn-out script pages. This film does suffer from some lapses in logic. While the atmosphere is nicely evoked, and the acting is wonderfully overwrought, and the plot moves at a decent clip, it does suffer from one of those 11th hour revelations which explains the whole mystery, but which is kept from the audience for no good reason. Despite this, I'd recommend The Black Torment to anyone who loves 1960s British horror. It may be sadly lacking a Christopher Lee or a Peter Cushing, but Peter Arm and John Turner do a decent job with the material they're given and while the female leads, Heather Sears and Annette Whiteley, are not given a great deal to do, they do the best they can in their low-cut bodices and extravagant hats. There's even a huge swashbuckling sword fight in this film, which I must admit I wasn't expecting. As you might imagine, this film was met with mixed reviews, and while Compton didn't lose money on it, The Black Torment didn't exactly worry James Carreyrus there could only ever be one hammer.
3: Meet the Pleasure Girls. They came for the kicks. The Pleasure Girls. They take the kicks and the shocks of big city life in their stride. Ian McShane as a young photographer looking for a quick development. Francesca Annis as Sally, fresh and innocent. Two people with
4: burning ambitions, in love with life and each other. It could be happy normal people dunking babies in the front left right and center but of course we it won't it's too easy look i don't want to rush to the altar i want to try for a career sally i love you klaus kinski is the ruthless nico he had money
3: and enemies rosemary nichols pleasure girl loves leisure boy and she's courting disaster
2: you Realize what you were doing you? you're putting me on that gambling team he lost me too why after all this time i'm gonna have the baby but i won't need you or anyone like you
0: with a title and a trailer like that, you could be forgiven for assuming that this was another one of Compton's sensationalist takes on modern youth in swinging London. However, although this film was very loosely inspired by the lifestyles of the profumo women... Christine Keeler and Mundy Reese davis and although it references subjects like abortion and gambling, it's a far more freewheeling and less preachy film than That Kind of Girl. The plot is a series of interrelated stories involving young women in a trendy London flat. What I find striking about it is that the women are all fairly strong and interesting, for a film from this period. Meanwhile, most of the male characters are awful, weaselly little men, weak and corrupt. The most likeable man in the film turns out to be gay. Director Jerry O'Hara kept the costs down by shooting most of the film on location. It all went pretty smoothly, with the exception of interference from producer Harry Fine, and behind him Tony Tenza, of course. They were worried that the film wasn't really sexy enough, given the salacious title. Rewrites were forced on the Harry director to set more scenes in the bedroom, even if it was just one of the women talking on the phone, and Harry Fine made a number of helpful wardrobe suggestions to ensure the women spent their leisure time lounging around in revealing nighties, which is of course what women do all the time when men aren't looking. The Pleasure Girls is by no means a great film, but the use of real locations does give the film a nice slice of life feeling. And while it does contain the standard 1960s attitudes to women and to sex, it does feel almost proto-feminist in its depiction of strong, ambitious women who support each other. The cast is surprisingly strong, including a very young Ian McShane and Francesca Annis. But the biggest surprise is the presence of Klaus Kinski. He signed up to do the film in between jobs when he found himself broke and in London. He earned the princely sum of £900 for a few days' work and his presence does lend the film a certain amount of class. Although, apparently his accent was so thick, most of his lines had to be rewritten to make them comprehensible to the audience. As it turns out, Klaus Kinski was not the only European who found himself stranded in London with no cash. A bright young directorial talent had recently emerged in Polish director Roman Polanski. Polanski's feature film debut, A Knife in the Water, had emerged from the Berlin Film Festival with prizes and plaudits. Buoyed by this success, Polanski began touting a script called When Cattleback Comes around the major studios in Hollywood, where executives were impressed by his talent, but not enough to invest in it. Polanski tried his luck again in London, where he found that the British studios were impressed by his talent, but uh, no, the, the script was too experimental. Even Hammer's James career has turned down when Cattleback comes. But Hammer was a studio with no need to rock the boat. They had an established formula, and it worked. What Polanski needed was a young, risk-taking studio, keen to exploit the headlines in hiring this bright new talent. For Compton, there was also the temptation of increasing their prestige, by working with this new auteur, as Polanski himself put it.
2: Compton needed uh, some upgrading. You know, they, as you know, they started by the Compton Cinema, which was a way of getting around the censorship for films which were very daring in those times. We knew that sex has to be an element in it.
0: Tony Tenzer was in. But not with When Cattleback Comes. Tony was clear on that. It was just too arty, and the budget would be prohibitive. Polanski's surrealist comedy would have to wait. Tenzer asked Polanski to come up with something a little more modest. Polanski took a few weeks, and returned with a script for a film called Lovelyhead, about a young woman's descent into madness.
2: Myself, Gene Gudoski needed to make a picture, so we had to come up with something which had chances of being uh, being accepted. Therefore, we thought of a kind of horror film.
0: There would be some location shooting, but a very small cast. It would mostly be set in the confines of the woman's flat, as her sexual terrors and confinement drove her to the brink of insanity, Polanski explained. Perfect, said Tenzer. And just like that, Lovely Head was Compton's newest production. (laughs) it did not go smoothly. Polanski's budget was tiny, just £45,000. But such things did not concern the auteur. He demanded a specific and expensive director of photography. He demanded that he have Catherine Deneuve for the lead role. She also did not come cheap. Despite being relatively unknown outside of France at that time, she was massive in her home country, where she'd made a huge impact in the film Les Parapris de Cherbourg. Worse still, Polanski was a perfectionist. Beyond that, even if a take was fine, even if a take was perfect, with the perfect setup and the perfect lighting, and the perfect acting, and the perfect gestures, and the perfect delivery, he'd want to do it again, and again, and again. Tony Tenzer and Michael Klinger were practically pulling their hair out, but could do little to influence the auteur at work. They spoke with the line producer, Polanski's good friend, Jean Gutowski, who did his best to intercede with Polanski, but to little success. Polanski was a man driven, an artist delivering on his vision, and if that included multiple takes of a clock face, then that was how it was going to be. Catherine Deneuve also found him frustrating to work with. Polanski knew what he wanted from the actress, the haunted void in her eyes, the fracturing of her personality on screen. He denied Deneuve a long weekend to visit her boyfriend because he wanted to capture her sexual frustration on camera. At the same time, he pushed his inexperienced crew to produce the complicated special effects the film required. The Compton crew were used to shooting quickly and on location and had no idea how to get the walls of Deneuve's flat to crack on cue or for grasping hands to emerge through a wall. And they had to figure it all out themselves. And it had to be just right or cut, reset, we're doing it again. But underlying the anger and frustration and Tony's concerns as the film's original budget doubled to £95,000, was the sense that the film, now renamed Repulsion, was something very special. Tony's reaction to the first cut of the film was sheer astonishment. Compton had only gone and made a work of art. Tenser described the film as electrifying. The other benefit to working with Polanski was Polanski's knack for publicity and self-promotion. He was constantly surrounded by the elite of Swinging London, from Michael Caine to Julie Christie all keen to rub shoulders with the young genius, and Tony Tenza's experienced marketing skills kicked into gear.
1: This is Carol LeDoux. Young, beautiful, desirable. Men found her irresistible, repulsion. A frightening film that takes the everyday world and distorts it, taking you inside the mind of a girl driven to insanity. No other film has ever shown with such intense reality the terrifying journey into madness. Now the horrors from her twisted mind spill over into reality. Poor little girl,
3: all by herself,
1: all shaking like a little frightened animal.
4: Just a little kiss between
1: friends, eh? Come on. Now the nightmare terror from the depths of her imagination erupts into the solid world of every day, and fact and fantasy are fused in a frantic fury of repulsion.
0: Quite what Polanski thought of that frantic fantasy or fact and fiction trailer, I don't know. His film is nowhere near as sensational as this trailer suggests but it is an extraordinary film. Repulsion is the first of his apartment trilogy, films which examine the isolation and terror of city living, and which would be followed by Rosemary's Baby and The Tenant. In the film, Carol, played by De is a beautician working in a busy parlour in the middle of swinging London. She lives with her sister and her sister's boyfriend, but it's clear from the start that she's deeply troubled. She is painfully withdrawn, her eyes averted, her head down. Small things seem to affect her and even make her physically sick. She is distracted and alone, and no one, not her well-meaning manager at the salon, nor her would-be boyfriend, can find the cause of the problem. I must concede Catherine Deneuve is perfect for the role, and I can well understand Polanski's insistence that she play the part. She moves through this film, closed in on herself, so tightly wound that only her eyes can express her inner trauma, her absolute terror at her surroundings. In the film she plays a Belgian woman, alone in a foreign city, where the men see only her long blonde hair and perfect looks. They call out to her, and touch her, and stare at her. The men have no idea how to communicate with her, except sexually. In her sister's apartment, it's no better. The very presence of her sister's boyfriend troubles her. Even the sight of his razor in the bathroom and his shirt in the laundry make her ill. But things worsen when he takes Carol's sister away for a few days. Alone in the flat, Carol's fears intensify. The ticking of the clock, the cracking of the walls, begins to oppress her. The flat takes on a darker, threatening aspect always elongate. Ceilings loom lower. And who's that in the mirror behind her? And suddenly all that perfectionism starts to make sense. You can watch this film and spend your time just watching the background. There's nearly always something happening back there. Something closing in on Carol. The film never explains what exactly is troubling her, You can assume she's suffering from the trauma of a previous sexual assault, possibly as a child from her father, or even at the hands of her sister's boyfriend. Or both. But you'll never be sure. You see, for most of the time, the film keeps us in Carol's head. In confusion, fear, and isolation, we experience her world. We are threatened by the same grasping, greedy men. Is it a feminist film? I'm not in a position to say. You could argue that it cranks up so-called female neuroses to the point of parody, and portrays an overblown male view of female sexual trauma. But this is also a film that calls out the catcallers, and exposes the toxic attitudes of 1960s men. Even in scenes where Carol is not present, men come across as sleazy, arrogant predators, with only one or two exceptions. Take this scene where Carol's would-be boyfriend goes to the pub to meet his friends without her.
1: Still keeping our legs crossed. It's getting you down, you know. The old, old story, not before we're married, darling. I wouldn't waste your money. She seems a dead loss to me. I mean, (laughs) don't let her being foreign fool you. But all the same, these bloody virgins. They're just teasers, that's all. She seems to have old Colin nicely steamed up though. (laughs) She gets a big thrill out of it. You tell her. She'll soon strip off. Well, I want your advice. I'll Ah, do believe the old lad's in love. What about that, then? Another good man gone. I think your friends are going to have to help you. Why don't you um, take her over to Reggie's pad one evening? Yeah, steady on, John. Oh, well, Reggie'll lay something on, won't you, Reggie? <laughs> I can see the scene now. Sweet music, soft lights, a big jug of ice gin with um, orange or lemon on top of it. Oranges. My turrets a fruit cup and three of the most eligible bachelors in London. Here, I'm getting excited already. At the end of the evening, she'll be begging for it. (laughs) You'll soon be able to stop twitching. She'll weep with gratitude. Here, maybe we will too. (laughs) Maybe you want your face pushed in. Here, take your hands off me. For heaven's sake.
0: It is interesting to note that, in fact, one of Carol's murder victims was to be a woman in the original script. The boyfriend of Carol's sister is married, and his wife makes numerous phone calls to the flat. Originally, Polanski conceived that she would turn up to the flat, looking for him, only to be murdered by Carol. In the end, Polanski cut this, as it does seem antithetical to the film's theme, that Carol murders out of sheer terror at the threatening males who force their way into her life. Repulsion repays Tony Tenza's initial confidence in Polanski, and then some. It's a dense, rich film that bears repeated viewings, if you can stomach it. Nearly 60 years after it was released, its themes are still relevant today. Personally, I think it is one of Polanski's best films, with his trademark self-indulgence reined in by the tight budget. Ironically enough, It's that same low budget that causes Polanski to dislike the film himself, referring to it as shoddy. But despite Polanski's feeling that this is one of his minor films, written in a hurry and made with no money, it does contain some of the themes that would continue to run through his later work. After all, you can see echoes of Carol from Repulsion in Evelyn from Chinatown. In these films, trauma is only ever sublimated, it never dies. However, in its time the film did what Compton needed it to do. It was a huge hit at the Cannes Film Festival and a massive financial success around the world. And suddenly Compton were no longer the smallest fish in the pond. They were big. They were successful. And as calls started coming in from the Hollywood studios about possible future collaborations, they were suddenly international with audiences around the world clamouring to see what Polanski would do next. To Michael Klinger, it was obvious they would allow Polanski the freedom to shoot the film he'd originally wanted to make when Cattleback comes, now renamed cul de The story tells of a pair of criminals, injured and isolated, who take over the home of a nouveau riche but effete businessman, played by Donald Pleasance, and his trophy wife, played by François D'Auliac. I say they take over his home, it's actually more like a chateau, crossed with a castle. The criminals are played by Lionel Stander, best known for playing Max in Heart to Heart, and Jack McGowan, who would turn up again in Polanski's next film, The Fearless Vampire Killers. During the course of the film, the two criminals go from being a threatening presence to creating an uneasy alliance with the married couple. During the course of their stay, the criminals must endure a visit from Donald Pleasance's deeply unpleasant friends and their horrible child. And Donald Pleasance's character finds the criminal way of approaching problems somewhat liberating.
4: No one's been hurt. That's the main thing. Yes, that would have been the last straw. Look, I'll make good the damage to your stained glass. How could one possibly replace a St. Cuthbert's stained glass window? From the moment you set eyes on us, you had one thing in your mind, and that was to get it off this island.
2: Quite so. You let your filthy little brat get up to his disgusting tricks. Besides, <laughs> I know perfectly well why you came. You didn't take me for a fool. He knows
4: why. You hear that?
2: And he knows that why. about it was the same with Agnes, wasn't it? <laughs> May I ask what you're implying? Will you kindly shut your trap? Obviously, marriage does not suit you, my
4: poor George. Your poor George is telling you
2: to go to hell. Oh, Philip, you hear that? Like nag, a nagging, nagging it. bitch, that's all you are. All you care about is your gossip, your nag, nag, chitter chatter. chatter, 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 chatter George.
4: George. he's gone completely off his rocker because of that tart.
2: Oh, say that again.
4: Tart! Yeah. She's a tart. One has only to look at you to see that she'd go to bed with anything in trousers.
2: The tart, as you call her, happens to be my wife. Now, take your bloody filthy insinuations and get the hell out of my... Fortress! Ha <laughs> ha! Fortress! Get out, get, get, get out! Get out! Get out! Get out! Get out!
4: Get out!
0: Despite being marketed as a comedy thriller, cul-de-sac is actually neither of the above. Certainly it's part satire on bourgeois 1960s values but it's also a study on the nature of masculinity. With Pleasance playing a version of Ariel from Shakespeare's The Tempest and Stander standing in as Caliban. In fact, when Stander first invades the home, he finds Pleasance dressed in a shorty nightie and wearing makeup. As if that weren't complex enough, there are also tips of the hat to Samuel Beckett, with the protagonists waiting for the arrival of Cattleback, who never comes. And with a synopsis like that, you can imagine how Tony Tenza's marketing mind was perplexed by the project. What would the poster look like? Despite Polanski's name, it was a tougher sell than Repulsion, and Tenser was concerned. But Michael Klinger liked the idea of Compton becoming a legitimate name in British film production, creating quality projects. And so, following the terrific success of Repulsion, Cul-de-sac was allocated a £120,000 budget. It's still love for a British film production, but huge for Compton, and potentially disastrous if things went wrong. And straight away, things went wrong. Polanski determined he wished to shoot the majority of the film on location on Holy Island in the northeast of England. Battered by the elements and plagued by insects, the cast quickly became fractious and argumentative. Donald Pleasance alienated the rest of the cast by attempting to steal every scene he was in. Lionel Stander annoyed everyone by bragging about his career and refusing to work for more than six hours a day. Meanwhile, Polanski pushed Francoise Dauliac to the edge of hypothermia by having her frolic in the North Sea. And Donald Pleasant threatened to walk out due to Polanski's treatment of the actress, and Polanski's perfectionism continued to cause delays. With shooting on location, there was now additional complication of the harsh north winds, blowing the clouds across the sky and causing Polanski continuity issues. Tenser and Klinger tried to apply their usual pressure as the budget spiralled out of control, but Polanski, out of their reach on Holy Island, casually filed their telegrams in the bin. In the end, it was Michael Klinger who shut down production on the disastrous shoot, forcing Polanski to finish off his film in the studio. The end result was still a huge hit for Compton. Essentially, the film was already showing a profit, even before it was released, due to foreign pre-sales, based on the Polanski name alone. All the same, it was a chastening experience for Tony Tenzer, and the start of a crack in the professional relationship between Tenzer and Klinger. As to the film itself, it received similarly positive reviews upon release and generated good box office returns. Personally, I find the film disappointing. It appears to be Polanski's attempt to channel the bitterness he felt after his first wife, Barbara Kwiatkowska Lass, divorced him in 1962. In fact, he'd originally wanted to play the Donald Pleasance part himself, with Barbara playing the part of the trophy wife, allowing the couple to relive their bitter divorce on screen. As a result, it's hard to identify with the characters in this film. The Pleasance part is petty, annoying, and full of self-pity. The wife is fickle, shallow, and seeks only to create friction between the men so that they can assert their masculinity and fight for her. Despite this, and despite the financial headaches Polanski had caused, Tenza said he would quite willingly have worked with Polanski again. But by now, Hollywood was beckoning Polanski, and Compton returned to what they did best. Exploitation.
3: A brilliant scientist submits himself to a machine to prove his theory. With disastrous results. Here. Don't touch him! Suspense! Oh Go, wake up! Shock, uh, uh! science runs amuck when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Cut the power! Drive straight at him! Explosive scene as nature's forces demonstrate their superior power against man's efforts to interfere with the normal order of mind and matter a shattering suspense film to rivet your attention from its dramatic opening to its devastating climax. Be sure you see this terrific film, The Projected Man.
0: To reflect their now differing priorities, Michael and Tony separated their roles. Michael would focus on the projects that interested him, prestige projects like a live-action musical version of Alice in Wonderland and a North African adventure named Beau Brigand. Meanwhile, Tony would continue to focus on those projects which he knew he could market at home and sell abroad. The projected man was one of these. It borrowed liberally from films like The Fly and Man-Made Monster to tell a tale of a scientist who teleports himself into another dimension, only to return as a hideous mutant who can electrocute people with a single touch. It was a cheap, silly film, a 1950s creature feature made in the mid-1960s. It sufficed as the bottom half of a double bill, but nothing more. The Secrets of a Windmill Girl was also something of a throwback to Compton's earlier output. And in fact, some of it was shot some years earlier. For you see, the Compton Group had bought the old Windmill Theatre, a London institution in which glamorous women had danced and naked women posed for frisky World War II-era servicemen. Tenzer and Klinger closed it down and converted it into a modern, stylish cinema. To their credit, Tenzer and Klinger did this at a time when most of the old Art Deco picture palaces were in steep decline, either turning into sticky flea pits or being converted into bingo holes. However, ever conscious of an opportunity to cash in on notoriety, Tenzer and Klinger had arranged to have some footage shot both from the audience's point of view and behind the scenes at one of the Windmill Theatre's last ever live shows. This footage had sat unused until a narrative was shot around it, and the film was issued as another one of their salutary tales of vice and woe in the big city. Aside from being an interesting document on the closing of a London institution, it is not a very good film. The plot is predictable, although it is helped by having Pauline Collins as the star. She would go on to a great TV career, and also to star in the title role of Willie Russell's fantastic film, Shirley Valentine. But Compton would have one last great exploitation film left in them. In my opinion, it was the closest they ever got to emulating their rivals over at Hammer. It's one last lovely gasp of period drama horror, full of great actors, and with an interesting plot and lots of gruesome East End murders. I give you a study in terror.
1: If you are a woman, you walk these streets at your peril, for this is London's Whitechapel, in the time of Jack the Ripper, one of the world's most infamous killers. <laughs> leave my side for a single moment this is where jack the ripper once walked who was jack the ripper only one man thought he knew the answer his address 221b baker street please Kevin. his name
4: was sherlock holmes i have reason to assume a connection between this case of surgical instruments and your local murders mr that's slender talk like that can get you stuck no sir talk like that can get you hanged
1: A study in terror in the brawling, gaslit back streets of London's East End. A study in terror. These were the women who lived in the shadow of the Ripper. The redhead, once famed for her beauty. The gay, buxom little blonde. The kind of provocative women the Ripper loved. Never see anything like it this side of hell. A study in terror.
0: Strangely enough, this was a project which had originally begun life as a Sherlock Holmes musical. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's legacy of stories was entrusted to two gentlemen, Henry Lester and Adrian Conan Doyle, Sir Arthur's son. They had conceived the idea of Baker Street, a Broadway musical based on the characters of Holmes and Watson. When this fell through, they fell in with Herman Cohen, an American producer who had made the wonderfully garish horror film The Horrors of the Black Museum. Herman Cohen and Tony Tenzer were like-minded chaps who got along rather well and so it was Cohen who approached Tenzer and brought him the idea of reviving Sherlock Holmes for the big screen. Tony Tenzer was apprehensive at first. Like many people, he associated on-screen Holmes very strongly with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce and insisted that Compton make a very different kind of Holmes story. Tony Tenzer says it was he who came up with the idea of Holmes investigating Jack the Ripper. And he took the idea to writers Donald and Derek Ford, who had also adapted The Black Torment for Compton. Their script, which went through a number of title changes, including Sherlock Holmes and the Vice Murders, Sherlock Holmes and the House of Ill Repute, and simply *Fog*, was very well researched by the Ford brothers, who immersed themselves in the labyrinthine conspiracy theories that surround the Ripper. Wishing to avoid controversy, they avoided those theories involving the British royal family, although these would later resurface in the film Murder by Decree, the other film in which Sherlock Holmes tracks the Ripper, released in 1979. Despite their research, the Fords did play fast and loose with some of the events to meet the demands of the plot and of the box office. The victims of Jack the Ripper are generally younger than their real-life counterparts, in order to allow for glamorous women to be cast in their roles. Undoubtedly the most prominent victim in the cast is Barbara Windsor, who takes time off from the Carry On films to play the part of Annie Chapman, although she's still the same bubbly, saucy babs that we know and love.
4: Who's that? Oh, it's me, Mrs. Grimshaw, Annie Chapman. What do you want? What do I want? What do you think I want?
2: I live here, don't I? Not anymore, you don't. Not unless you pay your rent. Oh, I'll give it you in the morning. I've heard that before. You give it me now or you don't come in.
4: Good you old cow. Good you old cow! You nearly ruined my new bonnet. Serves your right. And now you can shove off out of it. Yeah, and you know what you can shove, don't you?
0: As for Holmes and Watson, the actors John Neville and Donald Houston were cast respectively. They both acquit themselves admirably in the roles, with Houston doing his very best to downplay Dr. Watson as a bumbler. It's no sign of disrespect to Nigel Bruce, the classic Watson. In fact, it's something of a compliment that Bruce's version of the role came to be so memorable that Donald Houston felt he needed to distance himself from it. Well, for the most part anyway.
4: Disgusting. A member of the medical profession caught red-handed, Dr. Watson? Hmm? What? Your indignation implies a degree of familiarity. My dear Holmes, you cannot think that I am familiar with a maniac who meets a woman in the street and stabs her again and again? In Whitechapel? What was the name of this unfortunate prostitute? Uh, Polly Nichols. How did you know she was a prostitute? Where have I put my damn pipe? Uh, how do you know, Holmes? You haven't seen a newspaper. You have been reading the stop press of the third edition of the Times, printed at 3.30 a.m. Therefore, the news must have come in at about 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. As Polly Nichols was murdered in the street, it is unlikely that her body remained undiscovered for long. So I deduce that it happened at about 1 o'clock in the morning. Very interesting. But it still doesn't explain how you knew she was a prostitute. No respectable woman would be out alone in the streets of Whitechapel at such an hour. Therefore, she was not a respectable woman. You make it seem so simple. And now, if you wouldn't mind standing up, my dear fellow. Stand up? What for? It is a well-known maxim of mine that when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the solution. And? Therefore, you are sitting on my pipe. Elementary, my dear Watson. And now, Whitechapel.
0: Adrian Conan Doyle and Henry Lester contributed £100,000 to the production on behalf of Sir Nigel Films, the production company which administered the Holmes stories. This meant the whole endeavour was given a very generous £160,000 budget, a lot of which went on an incredibly strong supporting cast, this included Frank Finlay as Inspector Lestrade, Anthony Quayle as an East End doctor and an astonishingly young Judy Dench as his daughter. Dame Judy was relatively new to the screen but was, at that time, establishing herself as an incredibly talented actor in the Royal Shakespeare Company. The film also boasts the very first on-screen portrayal of Mycroft Holmes, Sherlock's older brother, played by the venerable actor Robert Morley. And as an interesting postscript to all of the above, both Anthony Quayle and Frank Finlay would also appear in the other Holmes vs the Ripper film, Murder by Decree. Frank Finlay even plays the same part. This handsome cast, a bigger budget than usual, and an interesting director in James Hill, who was, at that time, cutting his teeth on the experimental and exciting TV series The Avengers, promised something special. The film was shot in studios which lovingly recreated Victorian era East End streets, but the film also used some actual East End locations. Consequently, the film is drenched in the atmosphere of the age, with cheeky prostitutes whispering things like, does the gentleman fancy a bit of company from the shadows? while malevolent footsteps echo down darkened alleyways and raucous laughter from pubs drowns out the screams of the murdered women. The pub scenes are marvellous, actually. Packed with costumed extras and wonderfully choreographed, to create the atmosphere of a chaotic, smoky, smelly pub where posh gents slummit alongside gangsters, pimps, roughnecks and sailors. All of this in contrast to the brightly lit, genteel world of Baker Street, where pompous politicians pontificate and Mycroft implores Sherlock to do his patriotic duty. In fact, the film does contain more social commentary than you would expect in a horror film of the period, with Anthony Quayle's Doctor lamenting that it took a series of grisly murders for authorities to care about the plight of the local women. Of course, the director never allowed the film's social conscience to get in the way of the revealing outfits or the bloody action. In one of the film's most imaginatively staged murders, we see the victim Polly Nichols plunged into a horse trough then enveloped in a cloud of blood as she is stabbed under water. All in all, A Study in Terror is a fantastic British horror film from the mid-1960s, which can easily stand alongside the best of Hammer or Amicus. The plot, while not spectacular, is fine. The acting is wonderful, the atmosphere is rich, the film is genuinely exciting and leads to a spectacular, fiery confrontation at the end of the film and the coda to the film sets up this same talented cast to do it all again. Tony Tenza threw his energies behind the movie, organising a star-studded party at the Sherlock Holmes pub, a huge marquee with a smoking gun which blew real smoke, and a full marching band, all dressed as Sherlock Holmes. And it failed to perform at the box office. It is perhaps not difficult to understand why, To an extent, the film has an issue of falling between two stools. On the one hand, it is a gruesome story about Jack the Ripper, but on the other, it's a story about gentleman detectives. The audience for a film like this is split. Those who enjoy Holmes may be put off by the grim details. Those who enjoy horror may find Holmes stuffy, or perhaps the audience just couldn't get past their perception of the Rathbone and Bruce movies. The posters commissioned by Tenzer tried to update Holmes' image. The tagline calls him The Original Caped Crusader, and he's surrounded by starbursts containing words like Biff, Pow, Crunch, and Aye! It really only goes to highlight how out of touch with the ultra-campy world of The Man from UNCLE, Batman, and James Bond Sherlock Holmes stories were. It's a huge shame. A Study in Terror was a wonderful film, and it deserved at least one sequel. While A Study in Terror didn't lose money for Compton, it wasn't the breakout hit they had hoped for. The start of a new Sherlock Holmes franchise to rival Hammer's Dracula and Frankenstein movies. As if that weren't bad enough, Michael Klinger's two prestige productions had completely collapsed. Klinger just couldn't interest the Hollywood backers he needed for his lavish Alice in Wonderland movie and political instability in the Middle East had spooked investors away from his North African epic, Beau Brigand. And so, without bitterness or acrimony, Tenzer and Klinger decided to call it quits. Tony sold his shares in Compton and ventured out on his own. As for Michael, he would eventually produce some of those prestige movies he talked about, including Shout at the Devil, starring Roger Moore and Lee Marvin, and the tough crime thriller, Get Carter, starring Michael Caine. Ironically, though, he would make his biggest money on the Confessions films, sex comedies from the 1970s, pure British exploitation, and as sleazy as anything he and Tony had produced in their nudist era. As for Tony, he decided to stick with what he knew best, Films that were easy to market and easy to sell, with great trailers and lurid posters. And if he happened to make art along the way, well, so long as it made money, that was fine with him. And as it happened, Tony Tenzer was about to make art, with the help of a young, tragic genius. A young man who promised him a film full of blood, violence, and sex but which also happened to be one of those films that successfully mixed exploitation and art. A film that can stand alongside The Devils and The Wicker Man as one of the great British horror films, and a film that rejuvenated the career of Vincent Price. I'm talking about The Witchfinder General, but the tale of Tony Tenzer and director Michael Reeves will have to wait until the next episode. I do hope you'll join us for part two of the Tony Tenza story. Until then, goodbye. This episode of the Big Screen Biograph was recorded in Paraparaumu, New Zealand, this episode was written and presented by Val Thomas. I'd also like to thank John Hamilton for his wonderful book, Beasts in the Cellar, which provided much of the material for this episode. You can follow the Big Screen Biograph on Twitter and Instagram at Big Biograph. And if you'd like to drop us a line about stories you'd like to hear, you can email bigscreenbiograph at gmail.com. But do remember... Only podcasts with listeners survive. So if you enjoy this show, please help to support us by spreading the word on social media. And please review us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you source your podcasts. Thank you for your company. We shall return with more stories for you, very soon.